Well, my friends, the 2012 election cycle is now fully upon us. And for all thinking Americans, uh, stakes are very high. There's not much doubt that two radically different visions for 21st century America are now firmly and passionately locked in place. Partisans on both sides are motivated, they are well-financed, and they are desperate to see their candidates win. In the middle of it all lies a large slice of our populace in which the casting of their ballot um, is still up for grabs. We're still open to being influenced. For some of them, they don't really think much about all of this, and if they vote at all, it will be a last-minute decision, probably based on either something a friend of them said to them or uh, perhaps just a quick TV spot. As Christians who benefit from this nation's laws, we recognize that we are obligated to pray for and submit to our leadership. It's our Christian duty. As citizens, we have a privilege. We have a privilege and a responsibility to participate in the governance of this country. So, I urge you to become informed and then exercise your privilege to vote and to do so responsibly in accordance with your Christian convictions. Let me also say to you that in the course of this election cycle, it's likely that you will hear a lot of rhetoric. And undoubtedly in that rhetoric you will hear an appeal to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, his statements regarding salt and light. You may even hear it said that our voting is what it means to be salt and light. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16 this morning. And as you do that, I'd like to say to you that when Jesus spoke about salt and light, he was referring to something far more profound and eternally significant than America's next election cycle. The truth is a whole lot deeper than that. In fact, it is these two memorable expressions, salt and light, which capture the very essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's captivated in these two words. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage together, 13 through 16, and in the process, we're going to see a description and a duty. A description and a duty. So we might understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Follow along as I read the text. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A description and a duty. Jesus uses a pair of metaphors here in this section, salt and light, to describe what it means to be his disciple. Before we unpack those metaphors, I'd like to make just a a few general observations about this passage, kind of set the foundation for where we're going. They're simple observations, but they help in the interpretive process. The first one is, when you see the word you or your in verses 13, 14, and 16, it is a second person plural you. Now, in the English language, unfortunately, right, we're a bit restricted. We have the word you, but we don't really have a good way to designate second person singular from second person plural. Second person singular being you, the individual, second person plural being you, the group. Unless you're from the South, right? Yeah. Y'all. Or y'all all, right? What we have here is a second person plural. Second person plural. What does that mean? What it means is that the emphasis of this passage is upon the disciples as a group, not upon the disciples as individuals. It's an emphasis on the group as opposed to the individual. Also suppose it means that the little childhood song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine, right? Is uh, not exactly correct. Sorry. Yeah, we taught it to our children too. So just the audience. It was the disciples gathered before him. It is us gathered before him through his word this morning. This message is for us. Secondly, the grammatical structure in verses 13 and 14 is worth a comment as well. Verse 13, you all, y'all, are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you all are the light of the world. The structure grammatically puts a very emphatic emphasis upon the pronoun you. It's very emphatic and it's restrictive. What that means is that Jesus is not talking about all people in general. He is talking about a group of people in particular, to the exclusion of all others. Specifically, he's talking to his followers. 
He's speaking to his disciples, his followers. They only are the salt and light of this world. The picture is something like this. It's Jesus looking around at the crowd of individuals before him, making eye contact with those who are his followers and saying, you are the salt and light of the world. You are the salt and the light of the world. You only. Not them. Perhaps the Pharisees, standing off to the side. Not them. You are the salt and light of the world. There's a restrictive nature to what he's saying here. And he's very, very emphatic about it. The third is an observation about a verb. We have the verb in the indicative rather than the imperative. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The verb are is in the indicative form. So what? Well, this is what. It speaks of being rather than doing. It speaks of being rather than doing. You are the light and salt. You are not to become the light and salt. You are not to to be light and salt. You already are light and salt. So it's not a commandment about behavior. It's a statement about reality. We can illustrate it this way, I suppose. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, don't turn there, just listen. (coughs) But over in Ephesians chapter 5, In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks in chapter 5 and verse 22, he speaks about the husband, and he uses an indicative verb there, and he says the husband is the head of the wife. It's not a command. He's not saying, husbands, be head of your wives. He's saying, husband, you are, by the virtue of the fact that you are a husband, you are the head of your wife. Now, what does your headship look like? And he gives a command a couple of verses later in verse 25, and he says, love love your wife. That's the command. Here in Matthew 5, we see the same thing. The indicative verb, you are salt, you are light. We see a command down in verse 16, let your light shine. There's your command. So that's the structure of the passage. It's a statement about reality. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, the inescapable reality is you are salt and you are light. And you alone are salt and you alone are light. Therefore, you have an obligation to do something. So let's take a look at these metaphors together. You are salt of the earth, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now salt, the history of salt, is long and important in the ancient world. 
Salt was highly valued as a commodity. I mean, in some parts, it was, it was legally restricted in ancient times. Historically, it was used as a currency for trade. One of the things you could trade would be salt. Salt, spices, camels, jewels, gold. You get the idea. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. Their wages were paid in salt. Hence the expression when someone was slacking off that they are not worth their salt. They're not worth their salt. Okay? They were paid their salt ration, but they hadn't earned it. Not worth their salt. According to a website that was all about salt, there's other interesting tidbits for you. The word salary, according to this website, is derived from the word, the word salt. And the word salad, supposedly, is derived from the word salt as well, because the Romans in those days would put salt on their leafy greens and their vegetables. I suppose that's the only way to make them edible, right? Although I prefer blue cheese, and lots of it. Now, salt is an interesting compound, right? Sodium chloride, in its crystalline form, it's salt as you and I know it. Now, we don't think much of salt, right? It's common. It's cheap. But it wasn't always true. According to Job chapter 6 and verse 6, there's <clears throat> an early mention of salt and, and mentioning it as a seasoning for food. So Job talks about salt and its purpose as a seasoning. Leviticus 2.13, Ezekiel 43.24, speaks of salt being used to flavor the sacrifices in the Levitical system. Salt would be added to the meat sacrifices to flavor them because the offerer would participate in eating the sacrifice, and who wants to eat a steak without some salt on it? So salt was added. According to Judges 9.45, salt was also used to destroy an enemy's agricultural capacity. So you would conquer a people group or a particular city or something, and you would sow salt in their fields. And it would render them unproductive. So it could, in concentration, it would be destructive. Ezekiel 16 and verse 4 talks about rubbing newborn babies with salt. Now, I wasn't able to discern what benefit might come of that. But uh, Ezekiel speaks of it, and uh, some things that I read said that it was carried on right up until recently in some of those Bedouin communities. So I don't know, rub your baby with salt. No, probably not. Okay, But anyway, it was done. It was done. But in the time, and this is probably the big one, in the time before refrigeration, salt would be rubbed into fresh meat or fish in order to preserve it and act as an antiseptic, to retard the decay of the flesh, 
Now remember, this is the this is a day and age in which refrigeration is not possible. And so in order to be able to, to have meat that would last for any period of time, particularly in hot climates, the meat would be salted. I think that this is the basic idea that Jesus is drawing on in his reference here in uh, chapter 5 and verse 13 of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preservative, you are the antiseptic of the earth. You and you alone are the preservative and antiseptic of the earth. But he goes on, and he says, But but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's kind of an interesting statement. Sodium chloride is a very stable compound, and and it doesn't disintegrate. It doesn't lose its saltiness. However, in these times, to these people group, when this was written the majority of them would get their salt from around the Dead Sea. Rock salt. This was not a pure form of salt. It was a contaminated mixture with gypsum and other minerals. So it wasn't pure. It wasn't like they had taken seawater and evaporated it and gotten pure salt. This was a, this was a kind of a half salt Evidently, what can happen over time, according to scholars, is that the the mixture, would the salt content of this mixture that could be picked up along the shore of the Dead Sea would leach out and you would be left with just the impurities. In which case, it would be a tasteless substance. And there's no way to put the salt back into it. When that would happen, once the process of leaching had occurred, it's impossible to re-salt this substance. It has no value anymore. Other than this, they just kind of throw it out to the garbage heap. And that's what that means by that expression, thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It's just trash, junk. Throw it away. So Jesus is making a point here. The point that he is making is is not that as Christians we must become salty. He's not saying that we need to become salty. God has already done that in us when he redeemed us. He made us salt. You are salt. The obligation that's implicit here in this text is, is that we are to remain salty. We're not to allow the leaching process to occur. That is, we're to remain faithful to those virtues that are ours by the fact of our new nature. Remain faithful to that. You are salt. Stay salty. Because if you lose your saltiness... You're not fit for anything but to be thrown out to the garbage heap. 
Interesting quote here by Bible commentator Tasker. He says, Disciples are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. But they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their own virtue. Here's the idea. The standards of the world are constantly moving, and it's not in the direction of improvement, right? It is only the people of God who have a fixed standard of morality, and that fixed standard of morality comes from where? It comes from the very Word of God itself. And so we are called as salt to remain salty, to remain an antiseptic, to remain a preservation agent in a world that is decaying around us. You are. You have no choice. You are the salt of the earth. Secondly, you are, verse 14, the light of the world. By virtue of your redemptive relationship with God through Christ, you are the light of the world. You are the only light the world will ever have. There's no alternatives. There's no substitutes. It's you and you alone. Or might I say it's us. We are the light of the world. Now, the, the notion of light is very prominent in the Scriptures, isn't it? it speaks of light. It's a very prominent image, and it's usually associated with concepts like purity, truth, knowledge, divine revelation, those sorts of ideas. Everything that God considers good is associated with the light. So as Jesus' followers, we we reflect God's light into the world, a world that desperately needs light. Jesus illustrates that reality for us with a couple of additional metaphors. Verse 14. A city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, in the ancient world, they would would build a town. Typically, they would build it on a high place. It was better defended, and therefore, it stood out. The downside of building it in a place that's more easily defended is that it's also more easily observable, right? It's set on a hill. It makes it very visible. At night, the residences of of the city would burn their oil lamps, and and the glow of the multiplied lamps burning in the various houses of the city set on a hill would stand out against the black drop of night. Again, it's hard to identify, right? We live here in in the Southern California Basin. If we see a good night, there's about 12 stars. 
Shame on us. There's really a lot more up there. Did you know that? The city of smaller lights glows against the, the backdrop of night. It cannot be hidden. It cannot be hidden. The idea here is, is a local body of believers living for the glory of God. We cannot be hidden either. It's an impossibility. We are the village. We are the city. We are on the hill. We are on display. The world is watching. There's no way to not be seen. Our community is watching us. They're watching us. When we fail to live as we should live, we're a contradiction. It goes on and talks in verse 15 about a household lamp. Household lamp. He says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. I have a picture here for you of a first century lamp, just so you get the idea. Little clay lamp. It put olive oil in there, and there's a wick, and they would light it. Obviously, when they would light it, it doesn't throw out a ton of light, and so you want to put it someplace prominent, right, so that it casts light to the whole house. He's saying it would be absolutely foolish for you to light that lamp and then turn around and put a pot on top of it. Common sense says when you light the lamp, you display it in a prominent place. It would be foolish for us to put a floor lamp in the closet, turn it on and close the door. Same basic idea. You light the lamp in order to illuminate And so, let it shine. The idea here is it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous as a follower of Jesus Christ to attempt to snuff out or, or conceal the light of who we are. That would be as dumb as lighting the candle, lighting the lamp there, and putting the basket on top of it. One writer said this, the job description of a disciple is, is not fulfilled by private personal holiness, but includes the witness of public exposure. That's well said. The job description of a disciple is not fulfilled by private personal holiness, but includes the witness of public exposure. So he's saying that our private personal holiness is Part of what it means to be a disciple, to be sure, but it doesn't end there. There's a public aspect to it. And in fact, I would suggest that that private personal holiness, if it's real, cannot help but show itself in a public display. Can't be concealed. Descriptions of a disciple. Salt and light. There's also a duty, a duty that goes with being 
a disciple. The duty of a disciple. And that's verse 16 where we find the only command, the only imperative in this passage. This is the only thing to be obeyed. Everything else is a statement about who you are. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because we are the light of the world, we are therefore instructed here to shine, to shine out. The context, let your light shine, is the same thing as let them see your good works. Same verse. You can put an equal sign if you like. Shine your light equals good works. It's the mark of discipleship. The shining light, the good works. These are grace-induced character traits that Jesus has just finished speaking of. Where? In the Beatitudes. Right? I mean, contextually, this is the next section. You know how that works? You see how that works? What are our good works? Our good works are the Beatitudes that he has just given. Those things which are true of us in principle because we are followers of Jesus Christ and must be grown in practice as we seek to follow after him. These are the good works. Said another way, these are the fruit that John the Baptist was talking about back in chapter 3 when he's saying, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. The good works, the fruit, the beatitudes, the light shining are all the same thing. The beatitudes describe the character of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So when we look at the beatitudes, we can understand what the good works are that he is calling for here in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see that you are humble, verse 3, that you are repentant, verse 4, that you are gentle, verse 5, that you are famished for righteousness, verse 6, that you are compassionate, verse 7, that you are holy, verse 8, that you are a peacemaker, verse 9, and that you are uncompromising in the face of persecution, verses 10 through 12. That is your good works. That is your light shining out. Why? Because you are the light of the world. Now, when this shines out of you, it may provoke persecution, right? Verses 10 through 12. It may produce persecution. It may produce insult. It may produce slander. But what it cannot do is, is cause us to go into hiding and put a, 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 a pot over the light so that no one can see it. That's what it can't do. Because we are lights, and lights shine. Now, some may see it, 
Verse 16, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is that they might become disciples themselves. That's how they glorify your Father who is in heaven. As they see your character, your saltiness, they they see your light, they, they experience your good works, then some will persecute you because of it, to be sure, but some, some will be drawn to the light and will glorify the Father by following you as a disciple. They will become disciples themselves. It's our evangelism. It's our evangelism. It is driven by our character. As we live out the new nature before the unbelieving world, we inhibit its moral decay. We hold it back. And we illumine its darkness and its need for a Savior. How's that work? Well, how about this? So uh, here you are at school. You have a group project. There's four or five of you in this group project. And they're all sort of angling one with another to figure out who can be the boss of the group or get credit. Or, you know, they're kind of self-promoting in all of this. And along you come with a humble heart seeking to serve the rest of the group, right? How can I, how can I help all of us do well in this project? And they look at you like you must have beamed in from another planet. Nobody thinks about anybody else. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? But that sort of humble heart plays out. And people say, man, you're different. You are really different. How come you're different? That, by the way, is a gospel invitation, opportunity to speak. Did you know that? That's what that's called. Or how about this one? You lose your cool at the office, and you pop off to somebody. And then you think, I've blown my testimony, right? How can I ever say I'm a Christian now because I lost my cool and I got angry at the office? Like, my whole testimony's ruined. I might as well go, you know, run away to Tarsus. No way. Actually, the stage has now been set for your Christian testimony. Here's how it works. You repent of your anger. And you go to the people you have sinned against, and you say to them, I sinned against you when I lost my temper and spoke these angry things to you. God has, has convicted me of the wickedness of my anger, and because of the death of Christ, I have been forgiven, but I still need to be reconciled to you. I, I desire your forgiveness as well, so will you please forgive me? And they go, oh, no, 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 that's all right, that's all right, that's all right, right? 
I mean, they, they don't know what to do with somebody who does that. So you're preaching the gospel. That's gospel preaching. Christians are not perfect, right? Christians are forgiven and forgiving. And so when we blow it, which we do, then when we humble our heart and in a repentant attitude come back and seek to be reconciled and restored to this person, we have preached the gospel to them. And God may well give opportunity for us to verbalize even further. It goes on down the line. To be gentle, right? Is strength under control. That means we don't, we don't pig pile when somebody's down. We're famished for the gospel. We're compassionate with the less fortunate. We're holy in our personal dealings. We're actively involved in reconciling people at odds with one another. We're a fire retardant, not an accelerant. And we will not compromise the truth, even if it brings pain and suffering. Some will respond well to that. They're looking for authentic Christianity. They're looking for something that really works, that, that really transforms people. Others are, are absolutely put off by it and enraged and will use the opportunity of your weakness to persecute you. I mean, they persecuted your Savior, right? Why would we think they won't persecute us too? So there's a tension. It's a, it's a healthy tension, if I can say it that way. Yeah, a healthy gospel tension. By the way, the Apostle Paul recognized this reality over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now he's speaking about the apostolic ministry, but the principle carries forward. He says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That's like another way to talk about the light. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are a fragrance, Paul says. We are a light. We are salt. To one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? What Paul says is, to some we smell good. We smell like life. To others, we smell putrid like death, and they want nothing to do with us. Jesus would say it this way. Our saltiness, our, our light-bearing, is attractive to some and repulsive to others. These are interesting images, by the way, salt and light. I think in them, there's, there sort of speaks of the balance of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Sort of the kind of a, two aspects of the balance. I'm just thinking about this. I mean, if, to be the salt of the world, well, we are the salt of the world, means we're engaged with the world, right? Salt sort of permeates everything. You're cooking, and you know, you put some salt in, you give it a stir, and it's just 
through everything. I think that kind of speaks about the Christian life. We're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We, we permeate society. This church, we're, we're, we permeate society, right? All week long, in various businesses and school contexts and families and neighborhoods and on and on and on, we are dispersed. But light sort of speaks about the, the fact that our, that our engagement with the world cannot lead us into compromise. We have to maintain a distinctive commitment. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We retard the world's corrosion by the display of godly living in every context in which we find ourselves. Last week I said it this way. We are living in the present by the values of the future. That's who we are. Living in the present by the values of the future. Salt and light. So what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Try this on for size. A person transformed by God's grace, resulting in a life that displays the Beatitudes and is thus a means of divine preservation and proclamation in a dark and decaying world. What is a disciple? One who, by God's grace, lives out the Beatitudes before an unbelieving world. May God so move us as a congregation, as a people of God in this place, to be what we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its simplicity. Thank you for its power. Oh Lord, today we have been instructed from your word about the reality of who we are in Christ, what it means to be your disciple. By virtue of these word pictures, Oh, Lord, we pray now for your help, your grace, our Father. May it continue to flow to us, and and may you help us to work out in practice what you have worked in in principle. May you enable us to be followers of Christ who are characterized openly and in a way that the world observes reflecting his character. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, my friends.